0: Welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast channel with me, Kevin Paul. In this episode, I talk to Gareth Jones. Gareth is a pioneer of digital and analogue recording. He got his big break working with Depeche Mode on the album Construction Time Again, and since then has been at the forefront of analogue and digital technology in the recording studio. Gareth is also part of analogue modular synthesiser group Sunroof with Mute Records owner Daniel Miller. After initial training at the BBC in the late 70s, he started his journey at Pathway Studios in London and helped build the Garden Studio in Shoreditch. In the early 80s, he moved to Berlin for 10 years and worked at the legendary Hansa Studio. His work goes all the way back to 1980 and includes artists such as Fad Gadget, Depeche Mode, Wire, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Erasure. More recently, he's worked with Stubble Man, The Leisure Society, Spiritual Friendship and Jan Tiersen it's fair to say that I could fill the entire podcast just mentioning the names of the artists he's worked with. Gareth is a pioneer in the use of digital equipment and combines this with analogue recording techniques and his love of synthesizers. Gareth, welcome to Mixbus, thanks for having me here. How are you?
1: Thanks Kevin, it's uh, really nice to Welcome you back to my little shed in Shoreditch Mm. after too many years. It's great to see you. I'm really well and delighted to be a part of your podcast.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Hasn't changed much, if I'm honest. Was it decorated with Jamie's work last time or has it always been? No, uh,
1: this is an artist called uh, uh, Ben. I love Jamie Reed's artwork, yeah. and I got kind of quite inspired by it when I moved here first in the 90s. Because yeah. in the Studio One in the Neve Room, it's like a Bedouin tent in there. Yes. Have you been in the Neve Room here? Not recently. It's, it's
0: super a long time it's ago.
1: gorgeous. It's like lined with silks. It looks like silks. I thought, oh, that's nice. Uh, I don't have to have a grey or a brown studio. I could have colours. Yeah, But I couldn't afford Jamie Reed. and I met a lovely guy called Ben, and I commissioned him to do these, uh, these paintings that are on the wall.
0: Yeah, it's very nice, Uh, very cosy, very relaxed. Trippy, man. What drew you to the studio in the first place? Because you've dedicated yourself to recording, your passion for recording is well known in the industry. Where did it all start?
1: It started at school, I suppose. I mean, I got my love of recording music from my dad. When I went into rock and roll, I felt I was being a bit of a rebel... Because uh, you know, my dad was a school teacher, and I was—I uh, I should have been a doctor or a lawyer or something. Right. And uh, but it turned. But many years later, I thought, oh, the old man's hobby was like listening to his records, and he really loved it. He had. He built a little speaker that went in a, like a, a base reflex cabinet that went across the corner of the living room, and he he, he, he mucked about with his hi-fi. He had an old Rogers valve hi-fi, uh, so. Anyway, uh, not only did I owe, like many of us, I owe, like, loads to my parents, but but I got a definite love of of music and recorded music uh, from the old man. So, and then somehow, when I was at school, I did all the usual things that you do at school, I suppose... uh, bunked off and <laughs> like yeah yeah anyway uh but uh, but i like me mu- i like my music lessons i liked uh, sound effects i played around with tape recorders so i started editing and recording and then i bought a beautiful uh, sadly i don't have it anymore i bought a, a ferrograph series four uh like a tube uh, based uh, mono tape recorder with uh, from some money i made picking fruit in the summer For some reason, I mean, I was only a kid. I don't know why I bought it, but I felt that I needed to have a tape recorder. And then I started recording my friends at school. I think the mic, I think was like total. I think it was a crystal mic, like a real dodgy mic. I I found that super powerful once I realised you could actually cut the tape.
0: Okay. I don't think I
1: was doing like the creative musical edits, but uh, because I wasn't that on it. But I, I was doing, you know cutting a bit of music and then cutting it into a sound effect and then cutting it into a bit of
0: speech. Oh, okay. And this so, was like so, super... early sort of radio editing almost. Kind of vibe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, like, um, like we made... And I made some things like like little radio dramas, I suppose you, they might be. I made a few okay,
0: brilliant.
1: Uh, weird little recordings with um, with mates. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, a lot of my discovery of music and our love of music and enjoyment of music has been through recorded music you know from being a student and listening to headphones through the night when i should have been asleep so i could get to lectures early in the morning yeah, uh, sure. and uh, you know so making records is a is a response to that yeah. and i'm actually making stuff that's very been very musically important to my to my journey you know some people come to come to music by playing in a band or, or loving gigs or or, yeah. or you know in the classical world just uh, giving great concerts, you know, but my my vibe is always, I've always loved it, like a couple of speakers or, or a set of headphones.
0: Yeah, and, and and you've always, as long as I've known you, you've always pushed the envelope with your recording. I mean, you, you know, you've told me many times about your time with Depeche Mode, for instance, where you were recording on balconies uh, recording drum sounds just from the streets or putting something in a bin and recording the sound of something going into the bin and you've got a microphone there recording that and then trying to do something with it on the other end. You know, is that just something that you just thought, I'm just going to have a go at that?
1: No, I, I basically I didn't know what I was doing. That's why it seems like we were being adventurous. Because right. I didn't know how to do it properly. So, uh, you know... <laughs> i kind of got a very basic training, as you mentioned at the, at the BBC, right, okay. which was hugely valuable at the time, uh, and and but it, it was super basic. But I never had the uh, pleasure of being an assistant in a great studio, okay. uh, where where you get the opportunity to work with masters uh, uh, of the art, yes. you know, both um, musical musical geniuses, men and women, and and back in the seventies, yeah. mostly uh, production and engineering geniuses, and mostly men back then. But I was kind of a bit thrown in the deep end uh, pathway. You know, h- happily for me, uh, a guy gave me a break. Mike, right. fine silver, who owned the studio, gave, gave me a break. I was looking for a job in a studio.
0: Okay. And right. he gave
1: me a break. And then I was thrown into, uh, like, doing it myself. So I, I, a lot of learning by doing. Right. And a lot of learning, actually, from the musicians who said, oh, uh, we, well, I want to do this, or how about we try this, or okay. something. So, So I was always... Because I didn't know... I mean there's some hugely creative uh, friends and colleagues who came up as assistants as well of course but I kind of feel because I didn't know what I was doing I was happy to try anything
0: and and obviously from trying anything you were responsible for creating some incredibly influential records
1: uh. some some things worked I mean the, the the even even on a big record the experiments you try that fail yeah uh, are not suitable they don't appear you know sure. uh, of course they don't but but actually I don't think there's Any failure involved in making art, the thing is to actually do it. And then, as you always learn, don't
0: you? You, Yeah, you learn if it works or you learn if you don't work.
1: And you learn that it doesn't work in this context, but it might work in another context. That was one of the big discoveries I had. Because when I was younger, I was a lot more ego-driven. So that if someone didn't like one of my ideas, I might be a bit offended, you know. But as I grew up, I realised that just because the idea is not appropriate in this musical context, doesn't mean it could also be a genius idea. That you put it on the shelf and you you pull it down five years later and use it, offer it in a different
0: musical context. How, how, how do you deal with that as a as a producer when? When someone says they don't like something,
1: when I was younger, yeah. then I would. Uh, you say, "How do you deal with it?" When you you sulk because they, <laughs> they, 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 yeah. so they don't like your They're idea. Quiet, you are sul- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's the matter with him? <laughs> but I think as you uh, as you uh, broaden your horizons, yeah. I mean, you know, we know, don't we? Especially, uh, is there's a very clear um, aspect of this in mixing. A lot of my commission work now is is mixing. Sure. Uh, what's important in mixing is that. Uh, the the client likes the mix, I've got a very broad palette, like like we all yes. have. You know, there's a million things we can do. There's a yes. million ways of getting to a good mix, and everyone gets there in their own way. Yes. But the point is, it doesn't matter if I like the mix or not. Lights. What matters is that the person I'm making the mix for, and it is a kind of a humble job in many ways, what matters is that they should be delighted. For, uh, and, for instance, like now... When the artist, when it's usually the artist is the, is, the, is the main visionary in saying if the Mind. mix is there, the client, usually yeah. the artist, could be yeah. a, a very creative A&R person, but when the client says they're happy with the mix, then I stop. Whereas uh, when I was younger, right. sometimes I'd be like, oh no, I definitely can make it better, and I'd right. carry on for two more days, okay. a total waste of time. This is something I've shared with many of my younger colleagues where they are also driven. And I said, but well, hang on a minute, you told me that the singer said he loved the mix. So, 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 why, stop. Are so why are you playing around with it? So why are you playing around with it? Stop now.
0: Yeah. Why, yeah. Because
1: it's not for you to say. There's a lot of, you have to put a lot of ego aside yeah. in great group work anyway. I don't think this is limited to uh, music, probably. Right.
0: Well, probably art in general. Probably, really. yeah, yeah. It could be. Uh, you making a film. Could or... be,
1: yeah, it could be. Uh, probably in many team in, in many in football, even, sure. you know, yeah. of course, uh, talented people have egos. Yeah. But sometimes you have to put your ego aside and say, it's better for me to pass the ball to my colleague
0: than to try, to, and, take than it to try
1: and take it myself. Yeah. You know, so, 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 so mm. ego generally gets in the way. But well, you know, when you're 20 and full of testosterone, then uh, <laughs> uh, it's hard to uh, have that perspective.
0: And God knows what else. <laughs> <And> God, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not just testosterone we're full of at uh, uh, 20.
1: How, how did you get involved with Mute? I helped John Fox build the garden studio, as you mentioned in your yep. intro, yep. which is round the corner from here, now now closed down, of course. Basically, I was engineering for John quite a lot, and uh, he got a bit of money together and he wanted to build a studio, and I was his engineer, so I I kind of advised on the gear. I mean, I didn't really know anything about it, but...
0: Like looking do you remember back, what you had, do you remember?
1: I what, do remember yeah. we bought an Amec uh, 2520, I think. Oh, wow, and uh, MCI JH24. And uh, it was the concept was a this, is quite funny actually, for the nerds, the concept was a it was marketed as like transformers were marketed as bad in this period in the eighties. Okay. So the thing we built was a transformerless studio, which is really funny now because now you can't wait to put all the audio through like twelve transformers yes, to make exactly. it sound yeah, fat. Yeah,
0: completely. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter.
1: We built as uh, we built. John invested and and I helped put together a bunch of gear. So it, what we got basically is a cool artistic electronic music. Electronic musician has built his own studio. So, uh, uh Mute's working out of Blackwing a lot. Uh, right, uh yes. they got the difficult third album coming up for Depeche Mode. They are looking for uh, another studio to work in, just for not that they fell out with Eric and, and John, but but they just wanted a change. They felt they needed some kind of change, they didn't know what. Which
0: album was that? Was that Construction Time yeah, again? It was, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, they came to John's studio. They thought, oh, they heard about, you know, there was probably pre-internet. They Somehow they'd heard about John's studio, thought, oh, that could be cool. And it wasn't like a rock and roll studio. It was like minimal and uh, like uh, electronic. We loved electronics, you know. So it kind of fitted. So they came to the studio. Um, John John Fox said to me, uh, oh, this band Depeche Mode are coming down the studio to check it out. Uh, it'd be a good session for you to do. Then I said... Uh, I'm not doing that, John. They're on the radio. I don't... (laughs) just didn't seem right, you know. I was into weird jazz and reggae, and I was doing uh, some... I was recording a systems group called The Lost Jockey. Uh, It wasn't really my music, I thought. You thought? So so I said no.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, uh, they they came down, and they checked the studio out with another engineer, and... uh, they liked the studio vibe, but they didn't like the engineer, luckily for me, because it turned right. into a lifelong friendship, yeah. particularly with the record company boss, Daniel, yeah, sure. one of my dear friends and mentors, I yeah, suppose, but yeah. now I'm much more of a colleague and friend. And um, so, so John came back to me again as my mentor again, you know, and said, look, Gareth, they liked the studio, but they didn't like the engineer. That I could. He said, he said, "Go over there and meet him." You know, basically what? wagging his finger at me. seemed like a lot. He was a lot more experienced than I mean, me, and a lot seemed like a lot older when I was in my twenties. He's probably only about four or four years older, or five years like, older. Yeah, or something. Yeah, but at that, but time, t- at that yeah. time, he seemed yeah. like much, massively experienced. He'd made like four albums or something. Uh, so, anyways, so that what? So I went over to. Uh, Kensington Garden Square, I think it was then, okay. and I met uh, the band and Daniel, and uh, of course they were like normal, nice, normal, weird people, and I was Perf- like, oh, perfect cool, fit. that's a kind of, <laughs> 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 like a good fit. Yeah. so they luckily, I mean, I suppose we were kind of interviewing each other, really, I mean, I, okay. you know, I didn't, I mean, not really, I wasn't, I just thought, okay, I'll go over there and met them, and uh, we took it from there.
0: Would you say that that's kind of a, a very definitive moment for you? Yeah,
1: so it's like sliding doors, isn't it? Like yeah. you know, it's like you got on the tube or you didn't get on. the, You know, yeah. but sure, that was that turned into uh, some very long friendships. I met some wonderful people, uh, yourself included, through that through that single meeting back yeah, then. Thank you. I mean, we might have met anyway, but oh, you know, oh, sure. still. And uh, uh, I met my wife through that connection, you know, wow. uh, somehow wow. many years later, Yeah. and so on, so. So yeah, very important. A pretty important finger wagging from that. From, from your John, boss. yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I just I I like this story because that's why it's so awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Because actually I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I was like, no, that's I'm not doing mine, that. Yeah. And beyond and I mean there was a I was incredibly fortunate to work with um such a creative bunch of people yeah. and who had massive Uh, You know success due to the wonderful songwriting and the awesome marketing and everything they did I was obviously a small part of that that was amazing But beyond that the creative relationships and the the learning that I went the curve that I went through was uh, It's really funny how you say this is why Judgment is not helpful We as little apes You know we always judge is it good is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? You
0: can't tell if it's good or bad until afterwards And in the studio, if if you're trying to be creative, judgment actually can be the killer. We,
1: I agree with that, Kevin, very much. We uh, one of the things that um, uh, the spiritual friendship project that I is with m- my friend Nick Hook in yes. in Brooklyn. We're doing our own music, uh, which has been a wonderful uh, uh, journey and and uh, growth experience for both of us. Uh, one of the early things that we hit on with that record was no judgment. Wow. So so that. Of course, we in in, the, in when we're creating stuff. So yeah. so because when, you write, when you're writing, well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah. When I you're mean, it, it's, it's, okay. it's there's it's, no
0: dismissing anything. No,
1: no, everything. You're open to everything. There. Everything. If you're in the room with someone, yeah. all ideas get tried. Yeah, and it's exactly. very easy to say, and and I, it's so important. I feel when you're when you're collaborating as a creative team, yeah, to not shut each other down.
0: So then you started with Depeche Mode, and you had Mute, and Them had great success. Yeah. Um and then you followed that up by working with Vince Clark and Erasure. And you were doing something very unique back then when you were with your work with Andy, I feel, because you were primarily responsible for recording Andy. He would use you and only you, as far as I can remember, to record his vocals. Um, which nowadays there are vocal engineers. Yeah. Yeah. But you were one of the first people to do that.
1: That came about, I met uh, Vince and Andy through um, Diamanda Gallas, actually. She was kind enough to mention to Andy that she felt that I had some understanding of recording voice. And right. really, I'm not even sure it is about the actual recording. I feel it was about giving the vocalist the space to express themselves. It always seemed a bit odd when I started recording that we'd spend, like, if we had a day to record a track, say we had a 14-hour day to record a track back in the 8-track, we'd spend, like, 12 and a half hours on the band and then the vocalist (laughs) would get, like, 20 minutes to do the vocal. That always seemed a bit...
0: very strange, That just
1: seemed a bit odd to me. Because, obviously, as a listener, I remembered, you know, as a young... Before I understood how, how records were made or before I even worked out how songs were constructed, yeah. I can feel a memory somewhere about this thing with vocal and a bunch of noise behind it. So it's like a 50-50 thing, you know. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that really you, it's probably worth spending half the
0: time on the vocals. You then started the mixing-in-the-box revolution because you were mixing-in-the-box way before anyone I knew. When did that start?
1: I think... That started, well, actually, partly just for the sheer bloody-mindedness of it. I thought, I, I realised quite early on. I, I remember uh, having a, a few plugins on an early laptop and, and thinking, "Hang on a minute, basically this is like hands and Mix Room that I can carry around under my arm." I mean, it, it probably wasn't in the, as we all know. Uh, 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 everyone of my age knows anyway in the early days it wasn't that good yeah uh, but now obviously it's incredible yeah. but uh, but in the early days it wasn't that good but still i had this idea i thought oh wait a minute i got two space echoes i got three reverbs i got four compressors you know and, and suddenly it's it seemed like i'd almost got the whole outboard rack of the hansa mix room in my laptop so i thought i'd try and d- do some some work like that right but, and there was probably a, a budget driven thing as well at some right, stage okay. Okay. probably got offered to do something but when I didn't have a studio to mix in yeah. and there was no budget really and someone said can you help and I thought right I'll, I'll try it on my laptop okay uh, in the same way that I've tried doing a bit of work on the iPad for same oh, really? uh, same same vibe where I've gone up, I've been on a holiday in Greece so I thought okay I'll do this remix on the iPad Interesting. and and you know just for the sheer fun of it really yeah, I suppose sure. just mucking about
0: I think that is quite fair to say that you were one of the very first people Mixing solely in the digital domain.
1: So I was very interested in computers all the way down. Yeah. Uh, so that when uh, and actually back to Erasure for a moment, because I'm, I was lucky enough to make a few royalties, a bit of royalties off uh, with uh, Vincent and Andy. I invested most of that money in the early. Um, digital computing Macs I had an SE30 with a Digi Design sound card and then a four channel sound card in my Mac 2FX whatever it was this is all super vintage Macs yes, right yeah, they like, cost a lot of money
0: yes they did cost yes a lot yeah, of thousands money. thousands of yeah, thousands unbelievable Yeah.
1: but it was super fun and it was a great learning curve and now it doesn't really matter but I I I had a instinct that because there were a number of ways it might go there was a standalone System called Radar. There yes, was a standalone digital recorder. Was quite good, and I never was that interested in that. I was I, the idea of having here a Studio Vision. The CDs on the wall there still uh, for the original Studio Vision, where it says yes. Deluxe CD. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, The idea that you could have audio in the sequencer, I just thought it was genius. Obviously, because yeah. sequencers are cool.
0: Yeah, because we 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 were quite lucky. We we grew up in that evolution. We we were alive when that evolution took place. Yeah, and. Yeah, it, it had its moments. I mean, you know, the computer would fall over on a regular basis. Sure, and, it was super challenging. Um, you know, first of all, it was four tracks of audio. Then it was eight track. Or it was for, for it? It was stereo, wasn't it? Stereo yeah. editing <clears throat> rather than anything else. Yeah. Uh, with what sound tools, and then it eventually made its way into Logic and Cubase. Cubase well, audio and logical. Yeah, and the
1: first one was a Studio Vision.
0: Studio which Vision. addressed right. the,
1: which is, was also a Californian company, I think, and okay. it addressed. It was a great. There was a great software sequencer called Vision. Really, um, sadly, defunct now. They worked out a way to talk to that stereo card that we used for sound tools, okay. so that it appeared in the sequencer, and that was you know, kind of mind. That was revolutionary. Mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, it was
0: revolutionary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, in a way, it's all a bit retro now because it seems everyone's used to, like, 300 tracks on their laptop. What I was getting at was that because I was, I was natural... Even at co- when I went to college, which was long before I ever worked in a recording studio, I was very interested in computing... Right. And so when all this shit started arriving, I was very excited by it, and I never saw it as a threat to the old way of working. I always just right. thought it was incredible right. yeah, new yeah, horizons. You, I, I you, loved you, it.
0: You completely embraced I it. I really loved it. You know? No, I remember you turning up at Mute with all, with your with your Mac and your MIDI keyboard, and we're going, "Oh, is that?" It? And you're just going, "Yep, stereo out on the desk." Yeah. And we're like, "Really? Well, that's an easy session." I forget, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but you know, whereas today. You know, everyone's doing yeah. rocking up as you say with the laptop. It's another example of of your curiosity with recorded sound. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I find quite inspirational, you know, because yeah, yeah, you thanks. you you're always looking for that. Whereas a lot of people, as you say, are kind of shying away from it. Certainly, well, not now, because because if if, if you're in your 20s, you were born into it, and therefore it's not unusual to, to work from a computer and stuff like that. But even those... That generation of people are now suddenly going the other way and starting to come into the analogue domain. And they're starting to see, oh, actually, analogue actually has a place in their sound. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, actually... Uh <coughs> a workflow are you using an analog front end in here
1: yeah i got uh, i got uh, 14 input uh, fat Bustard, oh,
0: um, which i like yeah, and so culture, uh, yeah. so
1: i'm using 14 inputs like that and then i've got uh, clarophonic that i use on the output of the Bustard as a busy okay. q just like a nice treble yeah like my my cheap version of um of uh, you know a massen a massenberg that right. i'm not paying for the lower frequencies i'm it's only Treble boost, so that's amazing equalizer. I like it a lot, and then I've got a few bits and pieces that I use on hardware inserts, okay. and then that I commit to. You know, they might be like like a minute. You know, it might be running for a while, and I do use the modular quite a lot. I've got to bucket brigade delays and spring reverbs and echo Fon here and magneto all these like super cool delay processes
0: yeah I can, I can see a lot of Overdrive. that in here actually so and, that uh,
1: that kind of runs again it all gets committed you know if right. uh, you do mainly you record, to, do
0: you record it back in yeah of course yes. yeah okay
1: mainly on a lead vocal i might right. build a special effect
0: i noticed on the leisure society album yeah the vocals on there are, are unbelievable I mean, the singer's obviously a fantastic singer. Yeah,
1: yeah, they delivered but, great, they did deliver treatment. great vocals. And that's an example, actually, where I very much enjoyed, and it's always a bit of a gamble at first, you know, because b- yeah. before you started working with people, you build an effect, and it's a, it's a, another it's another thing where you have to, A, not judge, otherwise you'll sure. never commit, and also then you have to not be ego-bound, because you have to be ready for them to say, oh, I don't like that. So with a combination of parallel drive from... The um, big trees. Yeah, that's made by Distortion. Steve, isn't it? Yeah, Steve.
0: He yeah. used to work at Mute. Uh,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, who worked at Mute.
1: Yeah, he's 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 a ge- he's a lovely, very guy very creative, a great guy. genius. And yeah. a, what, that's a real boutique company, isn't it? Yeah. What are they called? Audio Kitchen.
0: Audio Kitchen. Yeah, that's his own company. He 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 worked with Mutronics. Didn't he?
1: Yeah, Mutator they made, yeah. didn't they?
0: He did made, help yeah. make the Mutator. Yeah, yeah.
1: Because again, the vocal, as we know, the vocal so important. Yeah. And sometimes I I, I will build uh, outboard effects. Yeah. And even outboard. Even sometimes I use the tweaker's outboard compression.
0: I mean, I noticed on that Leisure Society album. I mean, the vocal effects are unbelievable. Sometimes it's like really subtle delays. Is, is that would that be all coming? Some from of here? it could be, yeah, yeah. And and again, spring reverbs yeah. and and maybe through the course of a song, you would have two or three vocal effects. Yeah. Sometimes it'd be quite dry. Yeah. Um, and then other times it would be very atmospheric. Well, when they sing loud, I put more effects on. Really? <laughs> that simple?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, in the choruses. You yeah. know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Are you going to mix it the way you've mixed every track you've mixed ever in your no, life?
1: No, man, I'm going to listen to the rough mix. Uh, okay. like, like always you know right. and that's again something uh, that took me about 20 years to to,
0: to 20 years learn. to learn because <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, forget the rough mixes before were made on a cassette
1: some, they weren't <laughs> but still they were very important and I think I, you know uh, I used to think oh the rough mix is irrelevant because they, uh, they've come right. to me to mix it and therefore and now of course the rough mix is f- sacred. So, right. okay. so you know, I've always got the rough mix in the rig, yeah. and it's always on a button where I can refer to. There's always something brilliant on the rough mix that I've missed. Yeah. You know, very rough mix led. I just mixed a lovely record, uh, a single track for a band from Norway called Major Parkinson. Okay. It was a beautiful song, and I, for some stupid reason, I got it into my head that the vocal sounded awesome dry. And it did sound awesome dry to me, right. but that didn't that didn't wash with the band. And, of course, it wasn't like that on the rough mix. And, and, and okay. that was a little example where, actually, I, I wasted my own time and I fell in love with something that was not appropriate.
0: Because nowadays that rough mix, can, we say it's rough... But actually, sometimes it could be Might 75% of the song, yeah, if man, not more.
1: and it could have been there for nine months. Yeah. It could have been there for a, lo- you know, a yeah. long time. I mean, there's no point in talking about how we used to work. No. But because it's built in a, in a, in a, in a DAW, the rough mix is a huge part of yeah. the... I mean, the, um, the Apparat record, LP5, yes. the rough mixes on that, that Sasha did with his producer, Phil, Phil uh, they were incredible. You know, it was one or two people who been kind enough to say how amazing uh, uh, the Apparat record sounds. Yeah. But, I mean, man, it's it sounded amazing
0: when it arrived. Do you spend a lot of time outside of the studio listening to music?
1: Yeah, I still... Uh, I was an early uh, adopter of the Sony Walkman. Actually, I bought one in in San Francisco before they were available in Europe. Right. The, so, headphones. I'm still using Sony... Uh,
0: You've got your Dr. You Dre's Beats...
1: Some, yeah, but I've got they're 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 good for the gym. But I got some other oh these awesome little Sony uh, these new little Sony earbuds. Are, I mean it's all, only Bluetooth, but they're still they're amazing. So right, yes, okay. I try I listen. I like listen. I, li, I love listening to vinyl at home as well. Right, okay, I listen to yeah. the radio a lot. Yeah. I'm a huge Radio Three fan. i classical okay, yeah. music was my first love because my dad's record collection was right, classical. Of course, um, I've inherited his vinyl. Actually, I've got it all at home, and that is quite wonderful yeah. to play. If I play, because my dad didn't have a lot of money, so he only had one recording of each piece. He'd only, he wouldn't have, he wasn't like a collector who'd have 20 recordings of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Right. But when I play my dad's old vinyl, I just rediscovered, like, when he passed, I t- when my mum died, actually, we closed the house down, and I took the vinyl, and I played some of the early, I thought, that is somehow the definitive version of the, that right. piece. So yeah, big Radio Three fan. So very often on in our house in the morning. I'll I'll put Radio Three on. Sometimes in the evening as well. Vinyl, I still love. Uh, Since I've discovered Tidal, with which high quality streaming, um, I'm not listening to. I'm not buying so much vinyl. I'm ashamed to say. In the early days of streaming, when I was only listening to Spotify with its very compressed feed, uh, and Apple Music again very compressed feed. I was like thinking, if I liked it, I'd go and buy the vinyl and enjoy the real thing. Okay. But now I do that a lot less. Uh, If my friend makes a piece of vinyl, um, then I'll buy it as a support and to have for for love. Yeah. But, but, you know, the title, especially in that... The quality is extremely good. They've even gone to mar- the master now, so you can get 96k wow. uh, stuff if you deliver to 96k and
0: tick the right box. Do you record at 96k now?
1: It depends on the track count. Uh, the spiritual friendship of uh, my own stuff that is, I know the track count is limited is 96. ki am not saying that I'm going to pick what is the 320 MP3 and what is the 96k, Kevin. I'm not. No. I'm listening to the music. Like I'm not a yeah. great technician. I don't think. I've... So I'm not trying to pretend that I find the one awesome and the other completely crap. Yeah. But I have noticed a little bit, I feel, uh, what, archiving analogue, uh, and or any time the stuff goes analogue, if you can bring it back in 96K, I think that's respectful for the yeah, future. Sure. So like a high-quality yeah. archive, yeah. multi-track. I'm not going to archive that at 44, no. you know, because it just seems rude. Uh, and, and also in working 96K, there's something about the intimacy and the way the high end I can screw tops on I don't know, there's something I kind of prefer about it
0: yeah I, I agree 96k for me does sound better than 48
1: if i had the computing power uh, then i would do you know and i was doing big projects i would do everything at 96k yeah, just okay, for for future proofing yeah, and because it yeah. feels a bit it feels a bit more like analog to me when i'm working at 96k yeah. i don't i just think you know what it, i'm not that gutted that it's not on tape I think it's actually... There's lots of detail. There's lots of depth. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to add one thing. Uh, A a colleague of mine has spoke... We spoke about this. um, uh, Has had some projects delivered to him, 96K. He couldn't play on his rig. And he's done several like this now. He's converted them to 44.1. And no one's ever noticed as well. That's the other side of the coin. So he's done the mixes. The mixes have been signed off on. And no one's ever said... So, so it's, it is. It's a subtle thing, right? I like it anyway. If I can do it, I like it. And I didn't when it first came out. When and it's all to do with prejudice. When my computer couldn't run ninety-six k, I just thought, what a waste of time.
0: You thought I'm not never. I'm not going to bother. No, with
1: No, it's pointless. Yeah. I thought. No, it's all. But since I've since my computing power's expanded a bit and some track counts have gone down yeah. then actually i'm thinking oh that's nice you know i'm on my little mojo cord, my little cord mojo d2a converter that's my reference converter for home i get a green light when it's 96k
0: as that's long as, nice so, so as long as your mixes are green you're happy i like to see the green light come on <laughs> what's what's 48 what's 441 oh no definitely <laughs> green every time when when people want to come into the industry what do you think what's your thoughts on education and when i say education what i mean is universities and colleges who are teaching large numbers of people to use studio equipment do you think that's a help or, or a hindrance to the students themselves i think
1: it depends on the student actually there's a, there's been there's a, an assistant or two here who came through that course and they were great. Right. Really great. Uh, on the other hand, we've all worked with people who come out of um, other colleges. Out of, uh, well, and in any college, they yeah. come and they think they know everything and they sure. haven't even made a record yet. You know, I love it when you get an email from a, a, a young person who's still perhaps at college and in the SIG it says producer. And then you think, even have you even produced one record? Even, you know, even one? And the other thing, of course, that happens is, you know, a lot of these uh, colleges are wonderfully well equipped with yeah. great teachers and great equipment. And I do, I have uh, gone and lectured myself and I've been a part of the MPG accreditation for the different colleges as well. Okay. Although that's not something I'm doing now. So they've been working, say, on massive great SSL dualities yeah. and big Neve consoles and everything and then they come to work with say me and actually they're in my little shed on a laptop were you at the when Mute we went into EMI were you in that phase yes. I mixed records in a cupboard at EMI I mixed a bunch of great records essentially in a cupboard <laughs> which is not very glamorous if you're a student and you have yeah. to you have to have the right kind of headspace to make that adjustment and go oh actually this is the real world. Yeah. The real world out here there's not always a budget to be in Abbey Road or air. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's clearly a good business model for the right student it can be a great help. Sure. Because okay. especially as the number of assistant placements that have gone down. You know, yes. you're now. When I met you, you introduced me to some great assistants who yeah. became great engineers and assistants for me.
0: Who, who I would have, if I remember, most of those would have come from a university at some point. Because At that time, it even was just then, it's just starting.
1: Because that, that, if that's on their CV, you think, yeah. well, at least they've been serious enough to study for one year, two years, three years. That's but right. even more now. Uh, you, it's a very hard to get a placement as an assistant yeah. without some kind of background. I think all yeah. the new assistants That's here right. have been through some kind of college. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the seventies and eighties, you as at sixteen you would apply to a, a studio and you would become a runner and you, you know, the classic tea t- t- person, yeah. toilet sandwich, cleaner, yeah. runner, sandwich, whatever, anything, sandwich uh, anything, yeah. anything, yeah. and and you'd come up that way. So it is a, it is a experience. And and another thing about it is. I mean, it's it's useful to study anything. I think it helps. Right. To, you know, you could go to college and study Latin, man. Seems yeah. stupid to say. That promotes new ways of thinking. I, for instance, I went to college. I studied science. It's nothing right. to do with what I do now. I, I did have a very creative, successful, and passionate relationship with the computer department. Yeah. But this was punch cards and printouts on great big Fortran machines, you know. It's nothing to do with the computers that I use now. So the courses are valuable as long as we realise there aren't the jobs to go with the courses uh, and as long as we realise there's a difference between the, the college and the industry. When I started working in little studios, it was th- basically punk. So yeah. so I wasn't a punk, actually. I was more like a psychedelic hippie guy. But the ethos of punk, this, this do-it-yourself thing, was, uh, uh, was really inspiring for me. So, and uh, the, the, because there was no question that you couldn't just do it. That was one of the things that I took from punk. You just have to step up and do it. And the other thing I wanted to add, actually, was our friend uh, Bruce Gilbert from Wire yeah, has yeah. a wonderful phrase, um, beginner's luck. He has noticed over a very long, super creative career that if he comes to something that he doesn't know and... Uh, interfaces with it
0: that first 10 minutes yes. or 1 hour or that
1: first day with yeah. the new pedal yeah. or something yeah. when you don't really know what's happening that that, that and i think that's wonderful and he, 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 he still i bumped into him recently and he spoke about that in the context of some new device he'd re- recently purchased. Amazing. Not an expensive device. I can't remember what it was even. But he was like, "I, I'm, I said, I really believe in this beginner's luck thing. You know, as <laughs> I as I great, interface with thing, it, actually. isn't it
0: good, you know? That's a great way to describe it, actually. That innocence almost that you don't know what you're doing. And you don't know how it's supposed
1: yeah. to work. And yet yeah. you can... But, of course, you have to be able to get sound through it. And that's one of the things I remember. As you said, now it's pretty easy with... A, an audio interface, you just basically put the track on input and sound comes out of the speaker. Yeah. But it was a huge achievement for me in my early days <laughs> yeah. in the BBC. <laughs> for all of us. In the BBC. I'm in a studio and to get a mic to come out the speaker oh, yeah. on your own It was a process. That, whoa, man! Yeah. I remember being in night sessions on the uh, in the studio flummoxed, you yeah. know, puzzled, challenged. Well, the, something know, that was, simple is so funny. Well,
0: yeah. it was so- something allegedly that simple, but it wasn't actually, If you if you think about it. Do you have any particular things that you've always done or things that maybe you've done but changed over the years to give you the gareth jones sound
1: the first thing that comes to mind is i've totally built back into my mixing flow how i used to do it at the beginning so i try and build a mix in a day and get it to the point where i can record it and take it home
0: how long does it take you to do a mix roughly well, I try to get it,
1: it depends, it's so much about the prep, isn't it? Okay. If you get 300 tracks and it's chaos, you have sure. to do some prep time. Yeah. Or, or if you're lucky, you might be able to hire an assistant to do the prep for you. Yeah. Um, so, But I try and get a mix done. I try and get it up to a stage where the, everything's in and sounding all right. Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as I get it to that point, I record it, I bounce it, whatever, print it actually, and then I go home. And then I play it in the morning and make some notes. Okay. So which is how what I used to do at the very beginning. So in other words, once I've got it to that point where the whole song is in, which in an ideal world is happened in a in a in a day's work, then
0: I take a break. You step back from it. I step it.
1: back, I go yeah. home, I do something else. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wake up in the morning, I write my journal, I have a cup of tea, yeah. and I sit down and I play the mix back on my little stereo at home and I make some notes. And then I come back in because I find that hugely more time effective. I used to get everything in and then I would stay up till six in the morning, still mucking about. Yeah, rather, but it's for me that's not time effective. As soon as everything's in and I can. In, I mean, uh, including the backing vocals, the whole song, the whole thing. where I is could actually so, yeah. play it to the band. I don't play it to the band at that stage, but where actually the whole song is in, yeah. then as soon as I got that and I think, oh, well, that's pretty good, then I'm, I kind of, and I'm almost racing against a deadline to get that done by 10 o'clock, say, or whenever okay. I'm leaving or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, sure. know, to get out, get on the tube, chill out, go home, get a bit of supper, and then play it. And yeah. because I find that very time effective. The, the perspective because of course the longer i'm the longer you work on a a, a mix the harder it is to maintain perspective right you know, okay some okay. of the uh, some of the great mix engineers around that i've seen working around in different studios it's almost like they always seem to be uh, in having a cup of tea or on the pool table those perspectives are valuable i think and i try and obviously you know it's all the things that everyone says, you know. Obviously, I don't uh, I don't go on the web. I don't answer emails. I don't have the phone on. Yeah. I try and do it like a three-hour session in the, in the old musicians' union rule. If I can get three hours focus on something, I yeah. can get a lot done, yeah. you know. Sure. So if I can do three three-hour focus sessions in a day and get the mix to a point where I can actually say, well, everything's in, and it stops me. Yeah. I think, well, hang on a minute, yeah. it's 9.30. Yeah. I've yeah. only got an hour. I need to get those bloody backing vocals yeah. in right Fine. now and I, the string yeah. section, come on. And then I, I push to do that. I find that very helpful.
0: Do you have a, a, a favourite piece of gear that you're currently that you're always using? Apart from maybe Barefoot, your... Barefoots. The Barefoots. Yeah, yeah you love them. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, they, They're, and they're a great sound The speakers.
1: other thing that's changed my monitoring vibe is uh, Sonarworks. I was very... When Trinoff came out, I was very suspicious of the DSP, the extra DSP. I've learned to love the Trinoff
0: now because some very... Can you explain what what that is to some people?
1: Well, uh, what it is, is it's a measurement microphones that calibrate the monitors. So it's room room correction. It's room correction. Okay. It's room monitor interface correction. Okay. So, for instance, in this room, even though I know this room really well, I was constantly having feedback from clients that, that stuff was a bit bassy. And then I, uh, a friend of mine, James, actually, it was James Aparithio, yeah. um, our mutual friend, yeah. who turned me on to Sonarworks, which is a cheap measurement mic and yes. a bit of software that you put on the output, and you ping, it takes you about 20 minutes to ping the room, yeah. and it turned out around about 100 hertz. So I had quite a big suck at dip in this room. So, and obviously I like bass, so even though I know the room and I was referencing other pieces of music, I was still putting too much bass on the tracks. <laughs> So a good monitor system is sure.
0: invaluable, isn't it? Can you suggest any things to avoid in the record-making process or the mix process or the production process that you can suggest to people?
1: Don't listen to the critic. Don't listen to your own critic. Don't be shut down by your own critic. That little voice. I think that's so important. You yeah. know, Let's face it, I am not Quincy Jones. I am not Glyn Johns. I am not, you know, there's a, millions... I am not Kraftwerk. There are millions of great awesome studio workers that i'm not so i I feel it's really important to shut your own personal critic down and as we said earlier like to be oh and and similarly don't shut anyone else down in the room yeah try everything if you and i decide to make a record together it's because we love each other and we trust each other and any idea that either of us throw into the room no matter how absurd is worth trying for a long time, you know, we, we we're all working in the studio and we we're like a team and we're yeah. mates and, and we're working on the, you know, we feel very close and we've constructed this thing, whatever it is. And then the record company comes down, right, with yeah. their opinions. And it's like, oh, no, what? what? So, and, and for a long time, I found it very frustrating that people seemingly outside the process would come in with their opinions about what we were doing. And I've seen a lot of my younger friends and colleagues struggle with this. And now what I say is, hang on a minute. You and me put 10 grand into making a record, right? Yeah. We give it to an engineer and a band to go away and make the record. And then they come back to us, and what they play us, we don't like. There's something wrong with it. And, and we put our own money, we put five grand in each. Imagine. Yeah. I say, what would you, what would you do? Well, obviously, you'd go down the studio and sort it out. That's flipping it round, right?
0: That, that comes back to your uh, no idea is a bad idea.
1: Uh, well, also it comes back around to the client's always
0: right. <laughs> the client's always right, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, funny enough, I, I was saying that at a lecture, you've got gates that you have to go yeah. through. You've got to get through the artist, yeah. the producer, yeah, the manager, yeah. the record company. Yeah, the artist's partner. And then maybe your record will go out into the world. Yeah. And you've got to find ways to get through those gates thanks
1: so much for coming by kevin it's great to see you great great to chat thank you very much cheers brother
0: thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all our other episodes and just before you go let me point you to the sound on sound forward slash podcasts website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels this has been a mixed bus production by me, Kevin Paul, for Sound on Sound.